You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Friends, today we were talking with Dr. Steve Watts, who is Assistant Professor of History at Crandall University in Moncton, New Brunswick, and Lecturer in Church History and Spirituality at the Westminster Theological Centre in Cheltenham in the UK. He's a graduate of St Andrews, he's a Regent grad as well, and he also has is teaching a, a distance ed class at Regent uh, this coming winter. So we had a conversation with Steve about... St. Francis of Assisi, and we talked with him um, a little bit about how do we understand the context in which St. Francis was living and a little bit about his conversion um, and then what was sort of going on and what was he reacting to and um, why did why did he do what he did? Why did he live the way that he did? Why did he think about um, books and education in the way that he did? Why did he think about animals in the way that he did? Um, why did he think about poverty in the way that he did? And then how did that influence the life of faith that he lived? Yeah, St. Francis, he's actually really well known, I feel like, in the church, but even in the broader church. Like, he gets painted as a pretty, for the most part, a a really, a guy to emulate in some ways. And one of the things that Stephen said was that St. Francis seemed to uh, live the life closest to how Jesus lived his life. And so that was really interesting. I'd never thought about that before. Um, So yeah, if you haven't heard of St. Francis, he did live an an incredible life. Some people say that he befriended animals. And so Stephen kind of cleared that up. He um, lived in an ascetic lifestyle, but he wasn't too strict or stringent. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Stephen Watts. Welcome to the Region Podcast. Very happy to be here. Thank you very much. We're excited to be here too. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, St. Francis today, but before we start talking about him, um, give us a little bit of a sense of your own journey with history and how you sort of became interested in history and then what sort of fueled you to then keep, you know, studying and be a historian. Well, that's such a great Regent-centered question because it really (laughs) does begin at Regent. Uh, now I had gotten to Regent by a slightly unorthodox way, which was, I was realizing that trying to be a professional musician wasn't happening as I was driving through, uh, the center of Canada in the dead of winter and thought surely I should be doing something else. And so I ended up enrolling (laughs) at Regent and I took, actually it was Paul Williams first class, uh, that he was teaching a seminar, I guess on, um, Christianity and capitalism, something like that. And then also something with Craig Gay uh, on technology. Mm. And the reason I say that is that it was more that focus on humanities and bigger ideas and so on and so forth was what attracted me at first to Regent. And that meant, you know, becoming ensconced in the world of Lauren Wilkinson and just developing all kinds of wonderful relationships uh, but what I started to realize, you know, as I was getting into the thick of my degree, is I was hearing a lot of grand narratives of things, meta narratives of things, to mm-hmm. quote uh, Ian. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I was starting to wonder, okay, well, 
Well, what actually was happening during that time? I mean, I've got the grand narrative, but can I get a, more of a hold of some of the, mm-hmm. the tangible things, the things that actually happened, mm-hmm. you know, a manuscript or something? And I'd really, I always had some general interest in history, but one that I, I just hadn't really pursued all that much outside of high school. And then I took a class with Bruce Highmarsh on the Christian spirit. Mm-hmm. And at that stage, I thought, or I was being encouraged towards continuing in the philosophy of technology and things that actually I still value as being very, very important, but it's all kind of the realm of ideas. And to take Bruce's course and encounter things about, you know, mystics, female mystics in the Middle Ages, it was just out of this, I had no idea what any of it was about. Hmm. Now, I didn't know that, you know, that by that stage within the scholarship, it had been, you know, a very hot topic for at least a decade. For me, it was all brand new. But I just realized that there was this whole world that I had so little knowledge about um, that one way or another was being grafted into these grand narratives. And mm. so I just realized, actually, if I'm going to go on, I would like to fill in that big memory gap. And especially mm. with the Middle Ages, it's about a thousand year memory gap, mm-hmm. which yeah. is exacerbated for me. He was you know, raised a Pentecostal where the memory gap is really from like the first century to like the beginning of the 20th, right? So a big memory gap. uh, And then all just also just wanting to learn about people and things and events and Mm -hmm. cultures and things. And I thought, look, I'm going to spend three or four years doing a PhD. I want to learn about people, not just to focus more and more on ideas. And so Mm -hmm. it was the confluence of all these things that got Mm. me into writing a master's thesis on a particular female mystic, Bechtild of Magdeburg. And then uh, because I had very little background in that outside of what I was mostly kind of self-taught with, uh, I went to St. Andrews and got a one-year master's and onto a PhD where it was a real crash course in Latin and working in archives and mm-hmm. you know learning about these cultures. And it's just the more I've learned, the more I've discovered, the richer it's been. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's all been sunshine and daisies and all the rest of it, right? You still have to encounter yeah. things in the past that are difficult. Yeah. Uh, but my experience has been enriched as a result. And mm. the fact that I no longer have this massive memory gap yeah. and that I actually get to teach and share out of what was my memory memory gap and is still a memory gap of many others and yeah. found in them um, a real excitement. And mm. also when it comes to those things that are less reputable about the past, a greater understanding yeah. why they are, not as a way to validate them or to hand wave them away, but I think you don't truly learn from them unless you actually learn about them, if that mm. makes sense. So right. uh, that's, yeah. a, that's a fairly long-winded answer, no, but I think good. hopefully comprehensive answer yeah. for why I got into what I'm doing and why yeah. I still do it. Yeah, well, you can see it's <clears> like there's a passion there. It's like it's, mm-hmm. like, it's awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's great. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Well, we're talking about uh, St. Francis of Assisi and um, – He's he's kind of a known figure for some uh, in in the Christian history, specifically Catholic Catholic Church. But I wonder if you could just generally sum up if you had to say like who it who was Francis of Assisi. What what was he what was he known for? What would you say? Hmm. Well, I would say, and it's actually funny that you asked that because my dad, <laughs> uh, Rick, who of course is a uh, is, uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he used to be a professor at Regent himself. Um, he had asked me a similar question. You know, what's the deal with St. Yeah. Francis? And yeah. the way I've tried to explain it is, in my view, he is the closest person that we get in recorded history to imitating Jesus's life as literally as possible. Right. Mm. Right. Now that's within his own particular medieval assumptions. And we maybe will untangle this a bit as we go on in terms of the kind of values that are held within um, central Italy, uh, mm-hmm. especially Assisi, the place that he grew up and he, and he ministered that a lot of that of course is shaped by those experiences. But I mean, he has this kind of profound desire to imitate Jesus as closely as possible, uh, for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. And so we get to see that and um, written on the pages of history. But um, we also see the way in which his followers grappled with the intensity of that imitation Mm -hmm. and not knowing quite how to deal with it, quite frankly. Uh, (laughs) So I think that's my kind of summary. Now, that's somewhat provocative, but I think that he quite genuinely sets off on that path. And um, truly feels as if the Lord has called him to do so. Mm. And mm-hmm. those who are willing to follow him, follow him as he follows Christ, you know, mm-hmm. to quote Paul. So that's yeah. my, uh, <laughs> that's my, that's yeah. my brief kind of no, that's good, or, or right? synopsis, yeah, yeah. I suppose. He's, like, he's basically trying to be so Jesus. We can unpack that more if you'd like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Liter- literally. <laughs> like, right? in, like kind to of the, in to a To the very, letter because. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's a very significant stage of his conversion, which is actually quite gradual. But the real kind of linchpin, the real thing that shifts his perspective in terms of the particular vocation that he goes on is him hearing this kind of constellation of passages that are read you know, as the, the day's reading by a priest. And it's all stuff like, you know, no possessions, on foot, no money. And he basically has this eureka moment. It's like, this is it. This is what I've been called to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's tell quite remarkable. Little, yeah. So tell us a little bit about you saying his conversion was kind of quite gradual and he has this kind of moment. Tell us a little bit about that. Like what's the sort of origin story of his life maybe? What was he like sort of before he came to follow Christ and then kind of embarked on this, as you say, this kind of vocational trajectory of following Jesus to that degree? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a remarkable story. Um and because he is such a, kind of a luminary figure, even during his lifetime, you have different accounts, really, of mm-hmm. how it all turns out. And, you mm-hmm. know, in the course that I'm teaching at Regent, uh, we will engage with some of those differing accounts. And in fact, the very first biography paints his, uh, the period of his youth is something almost conventionally like, oh, he was a bit of a rascal, you know, a bit dissolute, you know, drinking too much, partying too much, this kind of thing. And then, <clears throat> you know, within a decade or so, there's a kind of a response to this, maybe a decade or two, there's a response to this saying, you know, from the people who were actually with him going, well, he wasn't really that bad. And so the, the same, the author of that original biography produces mm-hmm. another one to say, oh, actually, you know, he wasn't quite so bad. You know, <laughs> he was, you know, maybe a bit too profligate, but, you know, so <clears throat> it's quite interesting how these things go. But in terms of kind of the, the, the consensus, let's say, the best um, notion of uh, w- perhaps the most accurate notion, post- most accurate picture that we can present is that he was raised within a relatively affluent household, one that was tied up with both the kind of burgeoning 
uh, trade that a lot of these central Italian cities were involved in that managed to connect all different parts of Europe. This is particularly its textile trade. So his dad uh, was involved in that, but also fairly early got into uh, real estate, which is something I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people in Vancouver mm-hmm. be quite uh, sensitive to, right? State speculation and things. So he got involved in real estate. So there's a lot of money there, but he is from the merchant class. Uh, and so even at that stage, despite all kinds of very interesting socioeconomic uh, bubblings and movements and things that happened since the 12th century in Italy, where a lot of these cities and towns, had, uh, the citizenship had been kind of declaring independence, a sense of kind of making, um, trying to claim their own rights, the development of communes, things like this, that a lot of members of the citizens, a lot of these citizens were you know, merchants. But they were still looking to access the ranks of the nobility, the status, mm. right? Mm-hmm. The, the prestige, the name, the title, even if they were the ones with the wealth. And so we actually find is that as Francis grows up, he longs to belong to the people of a different social, uh, higher social status. Mm-hmm. So he joins a social club and he hangs out with these people and he pays for everything. Right, and he spends money not just on himself to make himself look good, but he spends money on them as well, as a way of kind of buying himself in uh, to this social group. So he's the life of the party. He's you know spending money on his friends, on himself, and uh, but just wanting to belong, really. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, not only does he want to belong, you know, to fit the social circle, the other way of gaining access to the nobility is to prove your worth on the battlefield. And mm-hmm. so when he gets towards his kind of later teenage years, and he's been apprenticing to his dad, right? He's managing the books and various kinds of things, but he's spending a lot of money, partying all the time, but he's got this desire, how am I going to climb the ladder? I know not only am I going to buy my way there, but I'm going to win my way there to glory mm. on the battlefield. Uh, but it's just a disaster. He fights uh, uh, the, the people of Assisi. A bunch of these soldiers go out, fight the uh, people of Perugia. They lose. He ends up being in prison for a while, gets quite unwell. Doesn't stop him the first time. He tries another time. There's uh, another war that's being waged out in uh, in southern Italy. Uh, mm. Once again, right, it doesn't doesn't work out for him but there's something key that happens in the second occasion where he has this dream kind of a feverish dream or vision in in the medieval world visions and dreams Mm -hmm. are often seen as some almost um interchangeable in terms of the means by which god can talk to you and so even though he would consider himself kind of conventionally christian right as most people would have at that period he'd been baptized as a child Mm -hmm. and what have you um, he has this moment, he has this dream and he sees this warehouse and he expects to see a bunch of clothes, right? Because he knows about warehouses and clothes, but instead he sees all of these suits of armor. But what he doesn't quite realize is that the kind of the armor that he, he's, uh, that's being presented to him, and this is something that he realizes after the fact, uh, is these kind of, uh, it's going to be the soldiers, but the soldiers of the poor, these are going to be his followers, following on kind of lady poverty and all the rest of it, right? So it's this kind of precursor, a vision to say that actually what he thinks is going to happen is not going to be exactly how he thinks it's going to work out, right? There's Mm -hmm. something else is going on. But his biographers will say that something is changing already there. That He's starting to get a bit concerned that his hopes and dreams are not quite working out the way that he thought they might. (laughs) Yeah. And so 
here's where things in terms of the chronology get a bit mixed up. But the, the various stages is he starts to depart from that social environment. He starts kind of moving away from some of these friends. He no longer desires to find military glory. He wanders off to Rome, comes back, doesn't stay back at the family home, starts doing some increasingly dramatic things like starts to give all his money away, uh, starts desiring to spend more. If he does have money, he wants to give it not to the wealthy, but to give it to the poor. Mm. He starts, you know, not wearing nice clothes, keeps giving his own clothes away, much the consternation of his parents. And it, and it uh, reaches a great climax where he goes to the Bishop of Assisi, who's kind of had his eye on Francis for a little bit and wants to kind of give him some advice and to try and make sure that everything's okay. But he ends up going to this to the bishop, and you know this is also something that's being that's also being brought up by his parents, especially his dad, who's getting really concerned. It's like mm. not just my son's doing this, but my son's going to be inheriting all this wealth, and he's just throwing it all away. What are we going to do? And so Francis, quite dramatically, basically in front of you know a large group of people, and the bishop is kind of a major social event, disrobes, goes naked, basically, mm. takes mm. off the visual inheritance of his father and his vocation, all the things that gave him value and instead presents himself to the bishop who then clothes him as uh, as a signifier. This is now a son of the church. Mm. This is no longer, you know, France, this is no longer the son of Francis's father. This is now son of the church. And so that is a, you know, really, really important mm. signification that there's something dramatic has happened, that this is somebody who's entering into formal religious life. And I should say here, when a religious life in the medieval period doesn't have the same ring that it does today, like there's no mm-hmm. spiritual versus religious, religious life, especially in the kind of decision that Francis is making, is to say, I'm really going to take Christianity seriously. Yeah, This is not conventional to me. I'm actually going to take a vow and it's going to be one in front of people that I'm going to be held accountable to, right? So it's a very, very significant. Right. And it comes with it, you know, particular kinds of rights and exemptions, uh, but also all kinds of sets of expectations of how you're supposed to behave. So it's very, very important. But then also, in addition to that, there's, you know, he has a vision also as part of this narrative where God calls him to rebuild the church. Uh, This is a rundown church. And so he takes it literally, literally, Mm. uh, literally, as well as figuratively. Mm -hmm. Uh, In one version of the story, it's actually a crucifix speaks to him, right? I mean, that's one version. Yeah. Yeah. So he got to literally rebuild these old churches as well right. as figuratively is rebuilding the church. Yeah. Um, what's another uh, another part there is um, the one that actually, interestingly enough, he uh, really targets um, uh, one he thinks about towards the end of his life in his testament is he actually says the really important thing for him, and this is kind of towards the end of this kind of conversion stage, is where he actually is um, has this kind of profound contact uh, with a leper, which again, mm-hmm. depending on the story, mm. kissed by a leper or kisses a leper, whatever that is, which is this kind of profound, you know, you, sh- you can see where the spiritual and the material connect mm-hmm. for him in terms mm-hmm. of conversion, because lepers or at that time it could be anybody with some kind of skin disease the language of leprosy can cover all kinds of skin ailments but we're really considered the living dead 
right? I mean, mm. these people were the zombies. And there were, especially for whatever reason, in central Italy, there was a, a, oh, a, a relatively large population of them. And so they were outside, you know, the outskirts of the city. You couldn't touch them, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, because you realize that you might contract this disease. And so these were the kind of the socially dead, right? And maybe there's some other notion, which maybe they were judged by God. But for him to be able to shift from this desire to want to ascend the scale of the social hierarchy by glorifying himself, by wearing expensive clothes, by paying his way, to then having this full trans transition, mm. this full conversion to getting rid of the clothes, no longer identifying with the wealthy, but with the marginalized and no longer seeking to climb the social scale, but to go to the socially marginalized, even the socially dead. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the, that's the indication of how far his transition, mm -hmm. how, how great his conversion was. Mm -hmm. right. uh, mm -hmm. And so that's, and, and it's, it's the language of mercy is the way in which Francis talks about it. Not a yeah. sense of, I was convicted of all my right. ills. And he probably felt that way too, but it was just, yeah. it was that sense of mercy, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which was quite profound. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sorry I couldn't give you the the, the conversion story so briefly, but no. th there are many different stages totally. and elements to it, mm -hmm. um, and there were mo yet more I could say, but those yeah. are kind of the greatest hits. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think it's so helpful to it, it's really <clears throat> helpful to hear that though, because a lot of the stories, at least that I've heard about Francis, is like night and day, like one moment. Where I've heard a few of those stories, and they all seem to run together. But it's neat to see and hear, like that his story was conversion story was actually over time, which is kind of in some mm -hmm. sense relatable for, for people as well. Cause it's not for most people, it's like not this night and day, even it's, it's like different experiences and encounters that you have. Yeah. Very helpful. I wonder if you could yeah. share like, <clears throat> like I, my, my, my understanding is that there were a few things contextually happening during Francis's time. One of the things you mentioned was the, the climbing, the, the echelon, like the nobility and how that shifted for him was that also yeah, social ladder yeah the social ladder like was that also a part of like i imagine it was given the culture that the the catholic church was in was that also a part of like the catholic church because my understanding is that francis he got he got um uh what do you call it uh commissioned by tonsur oh commissioned yes. commissioned by the pope by innocent yeah, to start yeah. start this order for the purposes of um, kind of like almost sanctifying or uh, renewing renewing the Catholic Catholic Church. Right. Yeah. Well, he, I mean, this is part of the fun about the uh, once you start doing the historiography, right? The writing about history. Yeah. <clears throat> because there are different versions of this story, and mm. over time, it gets a little glossed over, right? It becomes yeah. harmonized. Uh, the reality, at least when you're talking about the commissioning of the Pope, is that um, I don't think the Pope had any real understanding about who this guy was mm. and what they were about. Yeah. Uh, but at that particular stage, Pope Innocent III, um, and I think in a very far-sighted way, said, actually, let's just see how this goes. Hmm. Right? He kind of realized that there was a bubbling up of a lot of a groundswell of renewal. Not just with Francis. Francis becomes the figurehead in many respects. Mm -hmm. But you see it, you know, there are letters um, even in the early 1210s 
you know, all of high ranking members of the church establishment going, we are seeing, you know, young men and women leaving very mm. prosperous backgrounds to follow after the poor Christ. Mm. And they're not going, this is something that we need to squash or squelch, whatever it is. They're going, this is remarkable. This is astounding. And they're starting to think, okay, practically, what do we need to do here? Because they, you know, as, uh, as a kind of a, <laughs> there's a Protestant way of looking back at this period. Mm. And some of it's legitimate, which is to say that the, church hierarchy is a kind of self-supporting, mm. you know, deeply problematic, deeply un-Jesus-like kind of hierarchy, right? It was all about power and the rest of it. Uh, and there is some truth to that. But mm. when you read the sources and see what they're actually dealing with, a lot of them are really committed to the pastoral vocation. And for mm -hmm. them, they recognize that being a good pastor is also is about facilitating renewal, but also ensuring that you know, that there's a sense of cohesion and and mm -hmm. that there's some level of organization and, you know, that, right. that people are legitimately being pastored. Um, and so you do have members of the papal curia, the papal court at that time, who were deeply committed to church reform. Hmm. And they wanted to be able to make sure that the renewal had its day and one of the things that's actually astonishing, I think, about this particular period of time is that you have someone like Innocent and Francis who are willing to meet each other halfway, mm. uh, where Francis, one of his uh, deep, um, because of his deep commitment to humility, mm. and you see this in the way in which he tells his followers, like, this does not give you license to go after the clergy. You need to submit to them out of humility wow. because of the role that they have been given, right? Mm. Now, he's not saying that as a way of, you know, justifying abuses. That That's not what he's saying, but it is like you you need to recognize that these are kind of ineffectively kind of God-appointed roles, right? Mm. This is, they have a particular role within the church. It's not your position to pull them down, but to help them, right? And so he sees this when he goes to the Pope, like it is so important for him that the Pope signs off on what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Now, the Pope at that stage has really no idea what's going on. And you can see the images even in the upper basilica in Assisi. There's 12 followers there. It's like very kind of Christological, right? There's probably three. Right? <laughs> and there's just no idea, right, what's going on. But the thing is, there are people who knew what was going on in Assisi and they told the Pope and said, look, I know they look strange, but they seem really genuine. Mm. And Pope Innocent had already demonstrated earlier that he's willing to go out on a limb to say, okay, we'll let some of these kind of renewal movements have their day. As long as they don't cause too much trouble, right? We'll let them have their day. And so he does it, right? Um, and, and also because Pope Innocent, you know, you can see in his writing, was desperate for some kind of reform within the church. Mm -hmm. um, and with it, without going on too much of a tangent here, just to say in terms of the great movements and changes within the late medieval world, is in the midst of a population explosion. Um, mm -hmm. That's to do with climate and agricultural surpluses and trade and all kinds of different things. But the old model of doing pastoral care was entirely outdated, and you had bishops over incredibly large dioceses yeah. and not nearly enough people and not nearly enough training involved to be able to pastor them effectively. And so there was a desire in the Fourth Lateran Council to get suitable men 
to help this great pastoral deficit. Now, he wasn't quite sure, it would seem, how the Franciscans, what the Franciscans were going to do, but at least they were going to help and not going to hurt. Right. Okay. And oh, so yeah. that's also that kind sense. of element where you think, mm. okay, well, let's just see. Let's see what they can do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah. No, it's super helpful. It's, I mean, it's quite a compelling story, isn't it? You know, like it's like, <clears> oh, <throat> this guy has had this, you know, you know, not a night and day conversion, but a radical kind of shift and stuff. But then there's all these kind of little critiques that you hear as well about Francis, like, mm-hmm. oh, was he, did he, was he anti-scholarship? Was he, um, you know, was he um, anti-embodiment, you know, whatever. Do you want to, do you want to, so, you know, some historians have said yeah. that Francis never owned a book or, you know, even a complete version of the Bible. Do you want to mm. talk to us about that? Do, you know, what, what, what was his relationship with reading and scholarship and, and those things? Yeah, so let's take that first one. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the medieval world, indeed, as is, you know, even in Western Europe and even North America up until relatively recently, I mean, even 19th century, <laughs> uh, education is a status symbol, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just a way of opening things up, but it's a status symbol. <clears throat> and indeed, you know, to not to put, uh, put too fine a point on it, there's a reason, for instance, that slaveholders in the South you know, didn't want their slaves to read, mm. right? Mm. I mean, because, <laughs> right? So it's mm. not just about things like liberty and freedom, but there's yeah. also a sense of demarcation, demarcating wow. social roles. Now, that isn't to say that illiteracy was somehow enforced within the medieval world, but just that very few people were literate. Mm. And the people who were literate tended to be the clergy uh, up until um, – relatively close to Francis's time mm. where it became a necessity for merchants to learn how to read and write to a degree to be able to, you know, just do their business. Uh, you also find the rise of a kind of a courtly culture in the 12th and 13th, 13th century. So, you know, Arthurian legends and things, these become popular around this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, knights of the round table, the mm-hmm. to do the old, um, <laughs> what's the, uh, <laughs> to do the uh, Holy Grail, Monty yeah. Python kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, right. So that's just emerging in the 12th century. And interestingly enough, Francis loved those songs. Francis is not his baptismal name. It's a name that comes out of his father's trading in France. He, you know, so this is mm-hmm. why he gets called Francis, Francesco. Uh, and he loves the songs, right, uh, that come out of that troubadour, troubadour culture. Uh, loves all that kind of culture, but literacy, right, is it to do with the clergy? And then, second of all, uh, for the people who are starting to go to the first universities. So this is also mm. a very exciting period because this is when the first universities are emerging. Right. And so you not only have the clergy, you have a what's beginning a kind of university culture, but with that university culture, you have uh, theology as a discipline mm. is first emerging. So mm-hmm. you had people who did theology, but the idea of a theologian is really only emerging over the course oh, of the 12th and yeah. 15th centuries, like people like Peter Abelard. Mm-hmm. And one of the dangers, or at least one of the critiques that emerged during this period, especially from the more conservative monastics, was to say, well, look, this is these people who think that they're becoming you know, greater theologians, they're just growing in arrogance. They're just setting themselves apart from the rest of the rest of Christendom, right? They're not mm-hmm. serving. They're just popping themselves up with knowledge. And it's, and it's knowing this, right, is, is, very, is essential background for understanding why Francis is so concerned about 
well, not education necessarily, but the flaunting of knowledge. Yeah, yeah. So that this is one element, right? The flaunting of knowledge, because you can't mm. be humble. Yeah. as far as he's concerned and being uh, the kind of academic who's setting themselves apart from everybody else. Right, right. Which itself, I think, is a wonderful lesson, <laughs> especially for those of us who've gone through graduate studies, right? right. Make mm-hmm. sure that this is, uh, this is service, okay? Mm-hmm. So this is what, that's one of the major elements. A second one is this, um, is that uh, it was actually very costly to have a book made. Mm. Um, and you know, to get an entire Bible yeah. at this stage, incredibly costly. And it was only really something that, you know, a cathedral or a monastery could afford. Other than that, you get gospel books, you get soldiers, which had the readings and what have you. But for someone to even have one of those, right, mm-hmm. is a huge amount of money. Mm-hmm. And what do you do then when you have <clears throat> a number of followers and only one person has the Psalter? What's the implication, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. that this person is somehow more valuable than others, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. it can't be shared equally. So that's another issue, right? You're dealing then with if you are all supposed to be humble mm-hmm. and there's an element of radical egalitarianism, what are you going to do when you deal with one person having something that's of great value and nobody else having one? Mm-hmm. The third one, uh, the third thing for us to consider is actually that rather than Francis being opposed to education per se or book reading per se, indeed he was actually a he um, loved the Bible. Mm-hmm. He loved the text of the Bible. After all, right? You have that uh, very important element of his conversion where he hears the Bible being yeah, read. Yeah. And it was actually said of Francis that we try and gather even symbolically little fragments of the Bible, anything mm-hmm. that the Bible was written on. Mm-hmm. Because this is, you know, sacred writing. It was very, very important to him. Oh, cool. uh, and furthermore, um, you have uh, uh, a letter that actually survives from his own hand that he writes to Antony of Padua. Antony is the second saint uh, of the uh, Franciscan order, even though he's of Padua is actually from uh, Portugal. Interestingly enough, his desire to convert into the Franciscan orders because he sees the bodies of Franciscan martyrs who had been unsuccessful in uh, preaching in Islamic territories. Wow. And so he becomes a Franciscan, ends up being, going to Padua, which at that stage is a university town, and puts his university learning out of the service of the gospel as a Franciscan. And he asks for some guidance from Francis, and Francis says, by all means, right? Mm. But again, make sure that you're doing things for the right reason, right? You're mm-hmm. serving the Lord. He, so he takes no issue with learning. He takes no issue with the Bible, but he, it's the sensitivity to make sure yeah. this doesn't become a status symbol, yeah. make sure this doesn't uh, uh, end up being just another way of reinforcing social hierarchies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's where that comes from. Yeah. 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 But he himself loves the scripture and will speak in scripture. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's so helpful to do really good history and understand the context and, yeah. and things that are happening within yeah. within people's context in um because you can just throw out mm-hmm. things out there that are actually false or maybe misguided in their approach one of the things francis is saint francis is known for is um uh befriending animals mm. and and some have yeah. even said that that he can <laughs> communicate with animals <clears throat> right. um like it's on on one occasion there's a story um, that he, that there's a, there's a wolf that's, um, mm-hmm. uh, going Go after these citizens from, from this city. And, uh, 
Francis mm-hmm. was able to defend the city from the wolf by making a deal with the wolf, um, in, uh, yeah. <laughs> bringing out food every day for the wolf in exchange for for safety. And uh, supposedly, in the mm-hmm. end, like the wolf died, and the city actually mourned because the wolf died. So it's like this beautiful tale of Francis defending the city <laughs> through like a diplomatic approach with a wolf. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Exactly. Do, you, do you have thoughts uh, on this story? Like, did Francis have relationships with animals? Like, could he communicate with them? Like, what was that? What was that like? Yeah, like, what is it, Doctor Doolittle or whatever? Is that you know he like? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly, isn't it? That's kind of the picture, you, and you see it in pictures on cards and stuff, and it he's is. got yeah. the bunnies and the wolves oh, yeah. yeah. and everything together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and you know, and you can find his bird feeder yeah. in the backyard. I mean, my my yeah. folks had one of that when they were living in uh, Surrey. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, right. Okay. Well, okay. There are two things. Uh, the first one I'm going to say is a really long account, but I'm going to try and do it really briefly. Okay. And that is that Francis by no means invents the uh, saints getting along well with animals. Right. <laughs> There's actually a very long tradition of that that goes back indeed even to the desert uh, fathers. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and you see it amongst some of the Irish monks. Uh, St. Galen, for example, had a very helpful bear who brought him firewood. Mm. <laughs> this is in the early Middle Ages, one of these <laughs> Irish monks. Um, right. uh, so, yeah, you, there, there are, there's a long heritage of this. Now, why mm. is that? It seems to be because part of the um, ethos behind monasticism, uh, Christian monasticism, is a recovering of a kind of Eden, of a kind of new Adam, new Eve. Mm. And that recovery comes through penitence and repentance. Mm. And, um, gosh, I could go into a lot more, but I won't. Okay, because it's fascinating, you know, especially when you have the, you know, when Athanasius talks about, you know, the, the... the desert being populated like cities, like a heavenly yeah. commonwealth. It's all this kind of reversing yeah, yeah. of the fall in many respects, right? Mm-hmm. And so the idea of of people coming back into kind of equilibrium with the natural world is is this kind of getting back to the intent of Eden, right? So mm-hmm. that that's so Francis isn't alone, right. but he's the kind of most popular example of this. Um, so he's in some respects, then he's actually part of a tradition. And indeed, interestingly enough, there's a tradition that carries on with the Franciscans where Antony of Padua at one stage is said to have preached to a bunch of fish who've come out of this. And you get the, you can see these paintings. They're just hysterical. You get all these fish. And you're not going to see this on a podcast. Yeah. I'm trying to demonstrate with my mouth and my hands. But you just imagine all of these fish, I, I guess, asphyxiating as they right. have their, their heads out of water uh, <laughs> to listen to the preaching of Antony of Padua. Um, <clears throat> so, okay. So what does it mean for Francis? Now, part of it might just come out of his delight with the natural world. And who knows? The world is deeply mysterious. I mean, I've heard of strange things happening with people. Uh, So some of this may indeed have some basis in reality. Um, To give a slightly more kind of historicist read on these things, right, to make everything more empirically Mm. or kind of rationalize it with respect to kind of modern empirical assumptions – uh, let's take the wolf, right? Some people have interpreted the wolf as actually being, you know, um, uh, I was about to say a pirate. It's not a pirate. It's uh, like a warlord or a leader of a, of mm-hmm. a bandits or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And he, um, 
you know, and and he's nicknamed the Wolf, right? Wherever it is, and so he enters into this, hmm. uh, like other actually mendicants, not just Francis, but the Dominicans do this as well, as they will often find themselves as go-betweens between the city and a bishop or mm. uh, different warring cities. They end up be- becoming peacemakers as kind of third parties. And so there may be some element where Francis was a peacemaker there. And then over time, the nickname became an actual wolf, you know, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the wolf of Gubbio is a, is a later story. <clears throat> There's also a, um, a very famously and beautiful depictions, especially from Giotto, of Francis preaching to the birds. Mm. And yeah. there's a version of that story, an old version of that story. Um, it's actually uh, depicted as the the citizens will refuse to listen to Francis, so he goes to preach to the birds instead. Um. And so the end, the the idea is actually that he is. Um, it's a judgment upon the oh, right. the people yeah. because the birds will listen, mm-hmm. the beasts mm-hmm. will listen where mm-hmm. they will not. Right, right. right? Mm-hmm. right. now, okay. Again, that might be rationalization. That's the way that that story is actually communicated. But once you get to the kind of little flowers of St. Francis in the later 13th and the 14th centuries, and then when it gets picked up by the Victorians, right, you know, where they start ascribing these very beautiful hymns to like to Francis that he never wrote, Mm -hmm. right, Uh, in the 19th century, what have you, early 20th century, after the Victorian period, um, you get this kind of very glossed over. Here's Francis dancing through the Umbrian countryside, hand in hand with Claire. And then they're singing to the birds and mm-hmm. riding the wolf to whatever region, wherever it is. <clears throat> and there is a part of him, right, that is that that does rejoice in the created world. That is absolutely true. He loves that. Um, you can see in which he his sense of this radical state of humility that mm-hmm. it's not just to other people, it's to the rest of the created world. So there's a one story that's recorded um, by some Benedictines and it's him towards the end of his life. He's very unwell. He's there with a, with his companion and he's on his uh, donkey on his ass. And they're going into the, into a, uh, a forest and there's a wolf, like a really ravenous wolf. That's, or is it one wolf or a couple? I can't remember. Um, I think it might be one in this particular story. And they're told, like, don't go in there. They're going to get you. And he mm-hmm. basically says, look, you know, don't worry about us. Brother Wolf isn't going to go after me, you know, or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And you get that, of course, in the Cantaloupe Creatures, that wonderful series of um, <clears throat> poetic series of meditations on, um, you know, of Sister Moon and uh, and uh, Sister Death and what have you. And and it really all does come out of this radical kind of he- Mm-hmm. A humility, you know, mm. um, that's that that is trying to ensure that whatever we're doing, we are not putting ourselves above others. Because, as he has seen, and I know this is a long story, but this con- yeah, explanation, good. but this connects yeah. to something we said earlier, is that you know, even as a young man, he was involved in conflicts that were all about civic self identity, our mm. city being greater than yours, us trying to you know beat you guys in the field of battle so we can get more prestige and get more access to trade and what have you. I mean, he saw the fruits of pride in terms of him trying to scale the social ladder and mm-hmm. the great economic injustice that came about as a result, right? Lepers and people who were kind of living off scraps, even as there's all this kind of um, great visual displays of wealth. He saw what all that did. And so you can understand his kind of rejection of all mm-hmm. of it to embrace this 
humility that you saw in Christ and say, we just mm. don't want to have anything to do with that. Mm. And if that means me kind of submitting myself, even as being a servant of the created world, then I'm going to mm. do so. Right. So it's quite, it's quite mm. profound, mm. but it's always important to realize totally. that right. it's not just me loving creation. That there's, there can be a political uh, or a theological yeah. or a social um, uh, agenda going on. And Francis, you know, we can tell by his writing was not an especially well-educated person. It's quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. We actually have his autograph, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you can see that he, he thought really carefully mm-hmm. about what he was doing and the symbolic impact yeah. about, uh, of what he was doing, mm-hmm. right? So he did preach a lot, but um, he recognized that especially for the larger population, action spoke louder, right? right? right. Yeah. Which yeah. could indeed be said, uh, today, yeah, totally, uh, yeah, as it was back then in the early 13th century. Yeah, mm-hmm. we hope you've been enjoying this wonderful conversation. But Claire wanted to take a few seconds just to share some ways you could get involved more in the Regent College podcast. Totally, we at Regent we love people being a part of the things that we're doing, and so there's a couple of different ways you can do that. If you've enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, let someone know. Share it with them. Share it with a family member, with a friend, with someone who you think would appreciate this and would love to hear it. That's the first way. Mm-hmm. Second way, you could you could give us a rating or write a little uh, comment on one of the on wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be another great way. And then the final way that you could uh, participate with us is if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to give a donation to Regent College, then we would warmly receive that. Yeah. You can do that by heading to rgnt.net forward slash give. And, you know, in the comment box, let them know that we sent you. Right, Nick? That's right. We do love hearing when people have appreciated the podcast. And so let you can let Nick know by sending an email to podcast at regent-college.edu. When Nick and I are having these conversations, it's sometimes hard for us to realise that actually people listen to these. And so when we get emails or we get a little note in the comment box on the donation page of our website, it just reminds us that people are actually listening and we love that. So please let us know that you're listening. Let us know if there are things that different profs that you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. One of the things that came out of St. Francis' life is not just an order, a monastic order, but also there's been different uh, buildings built after him, um, Mm. like a basilica and monasteries and buildings Mm. named after him. Given St. Francis' Uh, bent towards following Jesus and part of that meaning like uh, a life of of poverty in in some sense and giving away what he had. Uh, My my understanding is that the St. Francis Basilica at one time like housed the Catholic treasury and there's like a bunch of icons. The papal treasury. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the papal treasury and and, um, just very expensive uh, things Mm -hmm. and and, uh, I, I I hesitate to ask this question because I, I feel like um, it's maybe a little uh, hostile or like accusatory of the the Catholic Church, and I don't mean that at all. But I just want just want to get your thoughts on like it seems kind of a little ironic in some sense the life mm. that Francis led, and then what has 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 come of that and obviously this isn't the whole story but this is just maybe a little mm-hmm. picture into it do you have thoughts on on that specifically yeah yeah well i've, I've been to the upper and lower basilica mm-hmm. a number of years ago 
And I know exactly what you're talking about because down there, you know, it, uh, down, I believe it's in the, um, I believe it's in the lower Basilica. I can't remember exactly where it is um, or, or just connected to it uh, in Assisi. And, um, you know, both very impressive churches mm-hmm. um, built to honor Francis. Yeah. Uh, that you find what is attributed to him anyways is Francis, um, his habit or what was mm-hmm. what was left of it, which is just kind of patchwork of old bits of cloth, right? Oh. Sewn on, nothing new, right? Mm-hmm. Everything from the part. And you think, you look at that yeah. in the Pavarella, right? The little poor man of Assisi. Amidst of all of this, which would cost so much, yeah. enormous wealth, and you think, how? Yeah. How does all of this fit together? Now, to answer that question, there's going to be a couple of different parts. And I hope none of this is seen to legitimate it, but again, this mm-hmm. is a way of mm-hmm. right. trying to understand, yeah. right? And then when we come to our judgment, at least it's informed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so the first thing I should say is that Francis, of course, never set out mm. to establish a religious no. order, yeah. right? And... Mm. Um, and he, it was a, a kind of movement that he was setting up, trying to get started. And I think he realized quite quickly, as it became incredibly successful, that he just wasn't the right person to lead it. In fact, he, try, he tries to get out of it on a couple of occasions. Mm. Hmm. And um, and it is, I mean, it's just being unmanageable. I mean, it's just thousands mm-hmm. were flocking. I mean, what can you do? I mean, he's not... You know, the people who are more entrepreneurial minded, the ones who start up things are very rarely the people who are good at managing them, right? Yeah. Church planters are often very yeah. bad. Hard to kind of, right? not necessarily maintain organizing churches, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. They're a very different kind mm-hmm. of skill sets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And right. Francis is clearly of the first kind. And so it grows and grows and grows. He's having to deal with all kinds of things that he never wanted to get involved in. And, you know, and so he has this, you know, little ways in after the things really going off and get is off and running, right? He goes off to Egypt, right? As people now talk about this kind of great act of ecumenicism, I think he was trying to get martyred. I mean, I think he mm. just thought, I've done all yeah, that I can get me do. Out of here. <laughs> this seems to be the fullness of my, of my, te- of my, <clears throat> of the way that I can imitate Christ mm. is to go to the Sultan himself and, or die trying, right? Yeah. I mean, I, that's, I'm not, that's not a criticism. I just think that he thought mm-hmm. like, Surely my job is not to try and manage thousands mm. and thousands of these brothers. And then there are these sisters who want to get involved. If Claire wants to do something like this is just not anything that I can deal with. Uh, and so it, it ends up falling to other members of this movement and to the church and to the ecclesiastical hierarchy, some of whom are actually really committed to what he's doing to try and give it some shape. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't, doesn't fall apart and go into all kinds of different directions and, you know, going to rank heresy or any kinds of abuse or what, or what have you, right? There's real desire to think, okay, well, surely this has to go into some kind mm. of focus because this mm-hmm. is just, Francis doesn't really know what to do. And you can even see in his testament that he's just grappling, even, mm. you know, in, on his deathbed, that, man, I just, I want you guys to retain to the essence of what we were trying to do, but he's so clear that it's just spun way out of his control. Mm. And of course, there's, I can't get into all the details, but just to try and give you that picture. Mm. So it is members of his order try and turn it effectively into more of a coherent order. So do members of the ecclesiastical hierarchy. And very soon, within a number of years, especially after his death, it becomes increasingly a, a movement that's not 
that's no longer a lay driven grassroots movement. It's, it's more directed, mm-hmm. at least the leadership of the order becomes increasingly directed towards um, meeting that pastoral deficit that I described earlier. Mm. Yeah. And so they end up following in many respects in the steps of the Dominican order, following they're the order of preachers after Dominic, um, who are similar, a bit different in some important ways, but again, are basically trying to be pastors mm-hmm. where there'd be in a last lack of uh, proper um, ministry in that respect. So that's, that's what ends up happening to them. So yes, <clears throat> Francis didn't intend that, but became a victim of his own, of his own success. Sure. Yeah. Second thing, what about these big buildings? Um, one of the things that, I mean, gosh, it's happening even in the fourth and fifth centuries within Christian history. Uh, and then continues on throughout the Middle Ages, is that you don't find the the same kind of anxiety as we would find about throwing money at something that you really value. Right. <laughs> in mm-hmm. in even if that thing that you value <laughs> was humble or right. more. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's really the idea that you put your treasure where your heart is. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, definitely. So, I mean, and, and that's the right. So you can go to reliquies, reliquies, right, which are holding supposedly this the bones of saints. And let's just say that they are not the bones of a pig and what have you. Um, <clears throat> and these can be saints whose holiness is all predicated on their that they were a hermit who lived sim- simply, who lived away from the population, who were great ascetics, right? And then you have the bones, and because of this, especially coming from late antiquity into the Middle Ages, and even with some validity from the Old New Testaments, this idea that there's some kind of holiness that is some contact holiness on the bones mm. or various vestments, whatever's left behind by the saint, Um that have some miracle working properties and you put those in, you know, kind of a wooden mm-hmm. container and then you just put all these kind of jewels and gold and what have you. And you think like, what are you doing? I mean, it's the bones mm-hmm. or the saints or the holiness that's important, but for them to demonstrate why they think it's important to the show that their value to, to demonstrate the value or the, mm-hmm. or the worth that they hold something like this in, they put gold and silver mm-hmm. and, all the rest of it on it, right? And it's the same thing you know, when you go to some of these churches that are just adorned with all this kind of thing, and you think, like, shouldn't you have, in the spirit of the saint or the spirit of the Lord, like, melted all this stuff down and fed the hungry, right? And you, hmm. I mean, I totally understand why why hmm. do this, but from their point of view, is no, this is the way that we yeah. show, mm-hmm. yeah. the right. way that we appreciate yeah. yeah. somebody yeah. by putting that money there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm not trying to validate it, mm-hmm. but it's. That practice mm. has been going on for a very long time, quite frankly, is still going on today. Mm. Old BH turns into like $10,000 projectors and things. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, really nice but, sound yeah. systems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, the Pope thing is a little bit more complicated, and that has to do um, – oh, yeah. So part of the reason there's all that money is put in the basilicas and the palaces there is because the Pope's – think, okay, actually we can kind of turn this also into our, into a place that we can um, mm. spiritually rule mm. okay, politically as well to yeah, a certain degree. Right. Uh, but even then that sounds, 
I mean, my my answer can go on for ten minutes about talking about the role and significance of the papacy, and I don't mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. We could we could do that in the in class. the class. It's I was really going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it but it, ha- it it's it's not quite as cynical as it sounds, mm-hmm. even though it sounds really mm-hmm. um, incongruous to us. Uh, yeah, so not quite as cynical as it sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, not trying to explain it away. No, yeah, uh, but it has a lot to do with the Pope's trying to carve out some kind of authority from a position of weakness, believe yeah, it or not. Totally. So yeah. that's the, uh, totally. that's, that's the short answer yeah. to that. No, one. It's really so helpful. Good. But, yeah. but if I go ahead, okay, can I, can I just finish up yeah, one totally. thing on that? Because this is the one thing that popped in my head when Nick said it is you think about our, our the present Pope, yep. right? What's his name? Francis. Now he's not mm. a Franciscan. He's a Jesuit, Yeah. Mm-hmm. but he chose that name, right? Because on one hand he recognizes yeah. here is somebody who is a representative of being a fabulously wealthy, on the whole, fabulously wealthy mm-hmm. institution, right? Now, Catholic Church in some regions is incre- incredibly poor, some diocese incredibly poor, but on the whole, incredibly wealthy, yeah? But here's somebody who, from his Argentinian roots, is so committed mm-hmm. to working with the poor mm-hmm. and the marginalized. And so what name does he pick? to try and mm. grapple with that mm. potential mm-hmm. hypocrisy yeah, yeah. or apparent discordance. He picks Francis, yeah. right? So I think that's, yeah. I think I should tell us something. Totally. Like, yeah. like yeah. a life yeah. of Francis. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, so, good, so I wanted to add that one. Yeah, no, no, that's a great little, little, that's a good little point. Little to, kind of yeah. 21st century callback. Totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, yeah, as you say, they're kind of like holding those tensions yeah. somehow together. Um, so as Steve you are teaching yeah. a class, and so that so I feel like every little rabbit trail that you didn't get to go down, you have time. Yeah, time is coming. Yeah. We will get to do that. So yeah, it's yeah. been so good to chat with you. I, yeah, 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 absolutely. And we're like, yeah, looking forward to having you teach that, and we'll tell people more details about that. But thanks so much for your time and for doing this when you don't feel well. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's been awesome. Uh, yeah, no, I'm very <laughs> pleased to do it, and I love I love helping Regent as much as I can. It's such a a uh, very special place in my heart. Yeah. So it's uh, it's always wonderful to give back. Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net. <laughs>